0: So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, 37 through 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces." Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Lord, if ever a time you confronted one of the greatest evils that exists on this planet, it is here. Because you are addressing religious hypocrisy. And those who dress themselves up on the outside, act mighty righteous, but on the inside they are, as you say here, full of wickedness and greed. I pray as we go through these words we'll understand what they mean and also be able to apply them that we we see them as as perhaps you have meant them uh, to be seen not just as a condemnation of the darkened soul, but also an unmasking, if you will, of the the wolves in sheep's clothing that surround us in every age. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, the the Lord uh, said something in the passages that we read that, Um, have truly had a profound effect on me. I've I've been mulling it over in my mind all week long. And And that comes from the 35th verse of this 11th chapter when Jesus said, Therefore, be careful, be wary, watch out, lest the light in you be darkness Now, he said that in the context of last week's message, which was about light and dark, about truth and falsehood. And Jesus was giving an analogy of how the 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 lamp of the body shines on the inside and fills the body either with light or with darkness. And we saw that from both a... Unregenerate and a regenerate perspective, both unbelievers and believers. For the unbeliever, that, that lamp is the soul. It's either regenerated, it's either a good soul, or it's a bad soul. And depending on what kind, the makeup of that soul is, it's going to fill the body with uh, either light or darkness. But in a sanctified sense, those who have already been redeemed, it speaks more of the mind and, and the senses, what we fill our, our minds with. And both of them, are going to be relevant this morning. Now, Jesus is bringing this out. And in order, I think, as I said in my prayer, I believe that it's sort of an unmasking. I mean, he's going to focus on religious hypocrisy. The greatest... Uh, um, A representation of religious or spiritual depravity that we have are those who are darkened on the inside and yet they're putting on the show on the outside and sometimes they can be extremely convincing and some of the most heinous mistakes that we're going to make are mistakes that we are made with our eyes wide open it's not like you can see evil and and avoid it it's like you see Evil that masquerades as light. And that's why Jesus says so poignantly, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Now we've talked about this over the past several weeks how Jesus is the light that has come into the world. And that the darkness will fight against it. And Satan has all these countermeasures that he brings up to try to get people, even though he can't stand against the light, to be fooled by the darkness. Now, Jesus is going to unmask that for us this morning. And, and he's going to use later on, we're going to get to it at the end, an analogy where he actually refers to this sort of darkness as an unmarked grave. And how easy it is for us to walk across that unmarked grave, which, of course, would be terribly defiling to the Hebrews, and defile ourselves thinking that we are filling our bodies with light. That's why spiritual discernment is so important, and that's why this is such an important passage. Now, I'm going to jump right into the text. It's kind of uncharacteristic for me, but there's a lot of it. And the the context that we have been talking about over the last weeks and months uh, that relate to this will come out, hopefully, as we go through it. So let's jump right into the text, starting in the 37th verse, and, and work our way through the first part of this scathing commentary on religious hypocrisy. While Jesus was speaking, um, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Now notice how Luke ties this together. I'm not going to go into any detail, but this is obviously something that has occurred while he is speaking what he was talking about last week, about the lamp of the body and about being careful that the light in you is not darkness. But actually, it goes all the way back to the 14th verse, which is when this event started, when they started accusing him of doing the work that he did for Beelzebub, or are looking for a sign. So Luke has tied this all together. But a Pharisee asked Jesus to supper. And I I don't think I need to go into too deeply who the Pharisees were. They were one of the four great segments or sections of Judaism in those days, along with the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. But as far as being religious hypocrites, they they weren't the most apostate. I think that it would be a toss-up between the Sadducees and the zealots to see who was the most apostate in those days. But they were certainly the most hypocritical. They certainly wrapped themselves in the appearance of piety and righteousness. So that's the reason Jesus is pointing this out. Now the word that is used there for dine is not the supper, the evening meal. This would be the noontime meal, the second or the first of the two great meals of the days as far as they were concerned. So a Pharisee asks Jesus to lunch basically is what this is. Um, And so Jesus went, as he would often do. Now, notice that he reclines at table, and I don't think I have to completely explain that, but that's the way they ate, lying down on mats or on uh, low-lying couches propped up on one, one elbow, and then reaching into a communal table filled with dishes, and that's the way they would eat. That's going to become important in, in the next verse. Now, notice what happens. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, this is not the first time this has come up in Luke. We saw this back in Galilee, but it was a group from Jerusalem that they were astonished that the disciples had not washed their hands before dinner. Now, it is, it is Jesus. Now, whether this is a setup or not, we can't tell. But it just tells us that this Pharisee was greatly surprised that Jesus didn't wash his hands and, you know, to put that in a modern context, you might ask yourself, well, so what's wrong with that? You know, who wants to be eating? And after all, they would eat out of the same bowls, right? This, this, by the way, is the utensil. No no forks or spoons, right? So here you've got a guy with grimy, filthy hands eating out of the same bowl that you're eating out. Who would not want them to wash their hands before that? Well, that's not what this is talking about, it, it's not talking about hygiene. It has nothing to do with whether the hands are clean or not. It has everything to do with ceremonial defilement. Remember, the, the Pharisees are consummate legalists. And so what they're, they're doing is they're saying that, you know, you don't know walking through the street to get here for lunch whether or not you have brushed up against the Gentile. Whether or not you have walked through his dust or his breath or you have handled something in the marketplace that a Gentile handled and a million other ways to defile yourself. So basically what they are saying is Jesus you need to go through ceremonial cleansing before you eat this meal because we have designated that it must be so. So in other words here's the problem. Jesus walks through the the street and he somehow gets defiled and he comes in there and he starts dipping the bread in the same bowl as everybody else. Well, then he puts that food, the hand defiles the food, the food defiles the body. So Jesus is completely defiled and at the same time he's defiled the food and everybody else at the table gets defiled. It was a major faux pas socially not to do this but Jesus is going to have nothing to do with it and the reason is because the Pharisees had surrounded themselves with their own rules and regulations, their own traditions and they were unbelievably legalistic. Jesus says this, why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Then for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus is not going to have anything to do with this because this was all traditions, added commandments that actually took away from the word of God. Now, I don't think any of us are as aware as perhaps we should be of just how fastidious, meticulous, and nitpicky These laws were. Again, when you washed your hands, you had to do it in a certain way. You had to use two different vessels of water, and each one of them had to be at least of a certain amount. And what you did is you poured it and then rolled it back over your hands and did it in a certain way. (laughs) I went to the website to look up the Mishnah, and I, I got something more than I bargained for. I found an Orthodox rabbi, who is actually explaining the Mishnah on the the Internet. And so he's explaining these these rules. So I've got one paragraph I want to read you from that website. And it's one paragraph of page after page after page of information about how you wash your hands. Just listen to this. Hands are rendered unclean and purified up to the wrist as follows. If one poured the first water, remember there's two waters, if one poured the first water over his hands as far as the wrist, then he poured the second water over his hands beyond the wrist and it flowed back to his hands, the hands are clean. If he poured both the first and the second waters over his hands beyond the wrist and they flowed back to his hands, his hands remain unclean. If he poured the first water over one hand, then he changed his mind and poured the second water over both hands, they are unclean. If he poured the first water over both hands and then changed his mind and poured the second um, water over one hand, the one hand is rendered clean, the other is not. If he poured water over one hand and rubbed it on another, it remains unclean. If he rubbed it on his head or on the wall for some amazing reason, it is clean. Water may be poured over the hands of four or five people, either side by side or one above the other, so long as the hands are held loosely enough for the water to flow between them. That's one paragraph out of Pages, pages from the Mishnah. That's from uh, the Mishnah, Yadayim two three. So, in other words, these weren't just little simple. Hey, wash your hands before you eat. <laughs> there was an incredible amount of of legalism that was included. In this and Jesus is simply not going to have anything to do with it. And so that's the that sparked this whole conversation. And, and Jesus is going to say some harsh words here. And, and the reason he's going to say harsh words is because this is undermining, making void actually, in his words, the, the word of God. So let's go on and see how he responds in the 39th verse. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, notice that it's plural. So he's talking to the, about the Pharisees as a whole, even though he's talking to his host. I want you to remember that. This is the guy who asked him to dinner. Um, but he, he's, he's talking about Pharisees in general. So he says, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So the analogy is quite simple and straightforward. There obviously were plates and dishes that were on the table. Maybe he used them as an object lesson, maybe not. But the fact that this was a Pharisee's house tells me that probably they started out pretty clean. And so you can say, look, look at the outside of those that are per- absolutely clean. Um, and, and that's the kind of, of, of presentation that you were getting spiritually. But perhaps this came about when the meal was over. And, and now those dishes are all piled in the middle and they're filled with old and crusting food because they would sit around and talk. And the flies have come in and there are flies all over it. And so they're all gritty and gross on the inside. Now, whether or not that's true or whether this was a mental image, uh, we, we know that what Jesus is saying is that your guys are interested in just cleaning the outside. You're not interested in cleaning the inside. And this is very, very similar. If we were to go back and put it into its context, you may remember that whole discussion about cleansing and sweeping and cleaning the house and putting it in order. And then the demons moving right back in. Yeah. Well, in this analogy, it's the same thing, except it's the exterior. It's the way they act on the outside. In other words, you're a hypocrite. Your religion is external. Inside, you're unregenerate. You're dark. You're evil-minded. And, and outside, you're acting like you're some kind of religious uh, a strong person. And Jesus is going to unmask that in what he says. Notice how he continues. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed. And wickedness. Two words, both of them extremely strong words. Very harsh words from Jesus. Let's use the second one first. Wickedness. The Greek dictionary defines it like this. It's a state or condition of a lack of moral or social values, baseness, maliciousness, sinfulness, and it speaks of an evil-mindedness. It speaks of a condition. It doesn't speak about something that comes and goes. We, we may see a, a great Old Testament saint like David who made a, a horrible sin, and, and he's a man filled with the Spirit of God. He falls to temptation, but he repents, and and, and and he's he 's mortified over his sins, and he asks God for forgiveness, and then he goes his way, looking to live a better life that 's not what wickedness refers to. Wickedness refers to that soul that we talked about last week that is a bad soul, a soul that is not filled with light, a non regenerate soul, a soul that fills the body, fills the person with darkness and uh, a defilement that 's what Jesus is saying. To his host. And then the second thing he says, actually the first, but I wanted to talk about it second because it's actually the stronger of the two words is you're full of greed. Now when we talk about greed, typically what we think about is someone like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, with all of his money around and he's just, you know, he's just harboring his money. Well, that's not exactly what the word means. It's stronger than that. Once again, let me read to you the description or the definition out of the Greek. Um, dictionary. The word itself means an act of seizure, robbery, or plunder. Now, you see, we don't pick that up in our definition of the word greed, but it is in this context that Jesus is using it. It means the inner state of mind that leads to seizure, that leads to a greediness, a rapacity. Jesus is calling this man a rapacious, ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. That that's what you do. You go and strip people of their belongings. It's not that you're just greedy about what you have. You want what everyone else has. And since you are an agent of evil, since you are filled with wickedness, what you actually want from people are their souls. Because that's what the devil wants, is souls. Once again, I want you to remember that this is the man who asked Jesus over for lunch. How would you like it if your lunch guests referred to you in that way? You know, we hear an awful lot about Jesus being so tolerant and never raising his voice, Jesus meek and mild. I don't think that's the biblical view that we have here of Jesus. Jesus is going to call out sin, and even if he's a host, there's no political correctness in this whatsoever. So he, he says some very harsh words, but that's just the beginning of his harshness. Look in the forty, uh, the fortieth verse. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now, the word that he uses, fools, is actually an adjective. Um, it has extra force to it. But the New American Standard, for instance, translates this, you foolish ones, or the new, the NIV, you foolish people. But I think that the ESV captures the thrust, the, the, the harshness of it by just simply saying, you fools. Now don't worry, uh, some of you are going to think, well wait a minute, didn't Jesus back in the Sermon on Mount warn against calling someone fool when he actually says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire? Well, yes, he said that. For one thing, it's a different word. But both of these words mean pretty much the same thing. When Jesus said that back in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about an unjustified uh, use of the word, uh, to use it as a weapon, to use it in the sense of slander or to to be a sword to to run someone through in that sense, uh, in the the literary sense or, or the verbal sense. And so, therefore, he's not doing that. The Bible talks about foolish people and and talks about fools. And almost always when the Bible talks about someone being foolish, it's because they are ignoring the clear revelation of God that is right in front of them and either making their own gods, their own idols, their own rules, or in some way looking past God's revelation. Of course, famously Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no gods. And so therefore Jesus is justly calling this man foolish because, or all Pharisees, and by extension, I didn't mention this, by extension, I think all heretics, all Hypocrites who are religiously hypocrites, he is saying that, um, that you are foolish because you have taken your own rules, you have replaced the rules with God of God with your own traditions, and you have made God into something that he is not, someone who is pleased with your or very impressed with your piety, and so therefore he cuts right to the quick, right to the quick, and then he says this. He says, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Man, oh man, Jesus has a way about him. Now in Matthew, you need to be careful that, you know, Matthew is perhaps the more famous use of this very same image, this very same idea, we're going to see it happen again later on. But his message is different. In other words, in Matthew, the way Jesus answers this is, you blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. He gives them the instructions, but here in Luke, he kicks that up a notch. He says, are you guys, do you really think that God cannot see on the inside? Do you really think that he is not aware Of what's going on in your inside? Do you think he doesn't see your wickedness? Do you think that he doesn't see what you think? God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He sees all of these things. David put it this way in the 139th Psalm: "Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your pre? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol." You are there. It is a scathing commentary on those that forget that God is all-powerful and sovereign and omniscient and sees right through our outer self-righteousness. I wonder sometimes, people come to church and they sing the songs where we talk about God's presence... They listen to a pastor like me who talks about his presence all the time. We we know that he is here in our midst. We ask him to quicken us to that presence. We talk about his lampstand, the lampstand of his spirit that lives here and dwells in the hearts of believers. And they come and they sing those songs and they listen to those things. And then they do something idiotic like put an empty envelope in the offering plate. Do you really think God doesn't see that? Do you really think you're getting away with something? Do you really think that when you rob from God and you do not give according to His plans that He is not paying attention? Of course He pays attention. When you leave this place and you go home and you watch inappropriate movies or pornography on the internet or social media, do you think He's not watching? Do you think He's not paying attention tomorrow when you go and you cheat somebody in a business deal or you fail to pay your taxes? I was floored when I was in seminary. I couldn't believe it when I found out that some of the seminarians that I was going to school with got caught cheating on an exam. Are you kidding me? Are you thinking about what you're doing and you don't think God sees that and you're in seminary? I had a partner one time in a business venture before um, I, 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 I went into ministry. And um, all of a sudden one day, a, a diploma showed up on his wall. It was a PhD, a doctorate. And I said, wow, I didn't know that you, you were studying. to you had a PhD, and he sort of evaded the question and says, no, I've been doing it for a long time, working at night. Well, I, I, I kind of made me suspicious. So I did some checking up, and I found out that, sure enough, it was a, it was an, a diploma mill. You didn't earn the PhD there. You bought it. So he had gone and bought the Ph.D., and it was a nice big old diploma. It was on his wall. And, and I, I, I wasn't so surprised just because of the nature of this guy. I had no business really being a partner with him. But uh, uh, what floored me about it is that somebody had done an expose on this particular um, university, which it really wasn't. It was just a storefront. And it had listed all the people who had received diplomas from it. You would not believe the number of pastors who had fake PhD diplomas so that people would call them doctor and they could make more money out of the marketplace. Now, do they not think God sees... I mean, do you not think God sees? I mean, religious hypocrisy is not just, uh, you know, for the, the great sinners. We, we all, in some degrees or another, are, 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 are hypocrites in that we don't always do what we preach or that we talk. I certainly am, am, am chief among those. But I'm not really talking about that kind of hypocrisy. I'm talking about those who are totally uh, one way on the outside and totally another way on the inside. And so that's what Jesus brings to their attention. Now, in the 41st verse, this is what he says. But give his alms those things that are within, and behold... Everything is clean for you. Now, this is a difficult verse in the Greek, and it is the, the source of many different interpretations, and I'm not going to go into them. They're quite technical, but let me just tell you basically that the safest interpretation, and that is that motives matter, that what is in your heart is what matters, You know something? If if you are giving to the poor, and that's usually what alms refers to is giving to the poor, if you are giving to the poor the poor for some other agenda, either you want control, or you want everyone to think that you're righteous, or you want to feel good because you're giving money to the poor, or whatever reason, there could be a thousand other reasons. If there's any other reason except a pure heart and a pure motive, because you love God and you love those that are made in his image. if you're not doing it for the right reasons, then your giving is worthless. The ends do not justify the means. It matters what's in your heart. And you can do exactly the same thing. You can give alms with a bad heart and you've no treasure in heaven whatsoever. Where well, you do exactly the same thing with the right heart. And you do get treasure in heaven that builds up for you. And that's the problem that we face, brothers and sisters. And I believe that's what Jesus is unmasking. It's so difficult when you have somebody that's going through the motions and has the talk and has every outward appearance of being righteous. And yet on the inside, they're doing it for completely different motives. How do we tell the difference? And I believe that's one of the reasons he goes into these six woes three of which we're going to look at this week, the other three next week. The three that we're going to look at this week are specifically to do with Pharisees. And once again, they're very similar to what we read in that great diatribe in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, but we want to be careful and not just accept that message, because especially with the last one, it's considerably different. So let's take a look at these woes. But woe to you, Pharisees! Now... The word woe, and and we've already seen it in Luke, and we've already talked about it, and I've gone into quite a lot of detail about the etymology of that word. Let me just give you a definition for what the word actually means in this context. It is a pronouncement of doom from a position of regret. Let me repeat that. When Jesus says these woes, it is a pronouncement of judgment, a pronouncement of doom, but he's not happy about it. It's from the position of regret. It's a lament. He is sorry that these people are condemning themselves in this way, but that doesn't mean he's simply going to turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to it. So he says that, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, we're not going to get into a discussion of tithing this morning and what tithing should be in a New Testament context. I run into uh, people that want to argue that point all the time. Tithing is just something that occurred in the Old Testament. Well, at least let me offer what Jesus says here. He, he, he's not telling us that tithing is a bad thing. Tithing is biblical. Um, it's, it's, and it is brought over into the New Testament by passages like this. You should have done that. And not neglected the other. He doesn't say, okay, tithing is gone. Um, however, it's a moot point in a New Testament uh, uh, context. We, we teach tithing here because 10% of your income is a good place to start. But you really don't want to argue that. You don't want to argue that and say that's an Old Testament uh, observance and it has nothing to do with the New Testament. Because before you do that, you need to see passages like this. Then you need to go and read the book of Acts. You need to look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 and elsewhere in that book because New Testament giving has nothing to do with a percentage. It has everything to do with everything that you have that you don't need. Alright, so you don't want to go there. You know, you, you don't want to try to argue that tithing is an Old Testament situation. But all that to make the point that, that uh, tithing was very established. And Jesus is not speaking out against tithing here. What he is speaking out against is tithing in the wrong way. Tithing with the wrong motives. And he's not using hyperbole when he says that you tithe the mint and the rue and every herb in your garden. I mean, they're pulling that out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But both of those passages were looking more at an agrarian society where you're tithing your your, your crop. But nonetheless, these guys were so focused on living out every little rule that they would tithe 10% of their garden herbs. And I am told it went so far as if a Pharisee is walking down the street and he sees a leaf of mint. He would take it home, clean it off, put it in his tea. But before he did, he would cut a tenth of it off and then put it in this little cup that he's going to take to the temple as his tithe. I mean, that's tithing for tithing's sake. That's tithing in a sense that I can tithe better than you can. Again, totally losing focus of why you are tithing and the one you are tithing to, and and doing it as a as, as, as almost as a badge of religiosity, and that's the way that the Pharisees were doing, it. and that's why Jesus calls them on it and says that you 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 are neglecting the greater issues, you are majoring in minors, you are focusing on all these nitpicky things, and you're missing the most important commandments. Now, once again. Let's go back. Let's look at the 10th chapter. I'm not going to do it. But at the end of the 10th chapter, just before we saw the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is teaching. A lawyer stands up and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus asks him on that occasion, what does the law tell you? And and, And the lawyer properly answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus relates here. These are the two great commandments that the people are ignoring so that they can tithe 10% of a leaf of mint, okay? That's what he means by justice. You see, the second part of the Ten Commandments that we just recited are all about justice, all about how to treat each other. All about how to to treat those that are in our midst as we would treat ourselves. To love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Or as the golden rule so-called would say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is justice. And so he might as well have just quoted that second great command that came out of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then of course the first one is the one that really really gets to it. I mean that is the the most important one when he says that you must love the Lord your God. I mean the the, the number 1 um fruit of the Spirit, the number one reflection of a redeemed soul, the number one um, reflection of a of a man whose soul or a woman whose soul has been uh taken over by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, rushing on it continually, is that they love God. They love God with a passion. And Jesus knew that these Pharisees did not love God. In fact he said so in John. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How did he know that? Because they didn't love him. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In other words, if you love God, you'd love me. If you knew God, you would know me. If God was your father, then you would know that he sent me. But yet, in the 8th chapter, he says back in John, God is not your father. Your father is the devil and you are sons of Satan is basically what he is saying about the Pharisees. A scathing commentary on religious hypocrisy and and bringing that out. Well, he goes on and he gives us the second of these great woes. Woe to you, Pharisees, verse 43, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Well, the best seats in the synagogue were, of course, those up front, but not just like the front here facing me. The best seats would be up here facing you. Okay, so everyone in the congregation got to see how important they were. Right. Because that's where the scroll was. That's where the rabbi was. That's where whoever was reading the scroll would be. And so you would have the, that dais, if you will, a place where that was. And then you'd have all the important people up there facing the congregation. All the men would be up front. Then there would be a screen. And behind the screen would be the women and children. That's the way they worshipped in the synagogues. And so if you weren't sitting up in one of those choice places, you lusted after that. That's what a Pharisee, they, they wanted more than anything. That recognition, those accolades. Jesus, of course, makes the um, powerful statement, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, that's what they're looking for, is other people to recognize how righteous they are on the outside without ever considering the more important things like loving God. Excuse me. The second uh, illustration he uses is you love those great greetings in the marketplace. Now, the synagogue was the center of Hebrew spiritual and cultural life, and there was one in virtually every village. But by the same token, the marketplace was the center of commercial and, to a large degree, social life. And sometimes they would meet daily, sometimes they would meet every once a week. Uh, They didn't have stores like we have. And so, therefore, when someone, everybody would be at the marketplace when they had one. And so Jesus is not just saying a, a nice, hey, how you doing? Good to see you here as you pass by. No, he's talking about an extravagant greeting a towing, bowing and giving deference before him and in fact probably even saying oh you great benefactor of the people you've done so much you're a pillar of this community and the pharisees sitting here oh no no don't do that to me you know don't tell me those oh no 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 keep it going right? They love it. They relish it. That is what they live for, is that kind of a, uh, of a presentation or a greeting in the marketplace. Now, both of those have the same problem. Both of those are bringing all the attention to them and none to God. All of them are based in pride. Pride, one of the greatest sins that we can have. And there's an arrogance there before God. There's a pride there before God. And so therefore, but the fact that they want the accolades of humans rather than the accolades of God shows that their heart's not right. So Jesus is bringing that out and unmasking the hypocritical heart in that way. And the third woe, he says, woe to you, verse 44, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And this is kind of the 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 core, I think, of at least this part of his woes. Uh, Once again, we need to be careful. We need to make sure that we see what Jesus is saying in Luke and not just read something like this and automatically assume that it's the same that Jesus would say in Matthew in exactly the same image. Same image, but a different statement. Very different so let me kind of flesh out the, the the image for you, and then we'll talk about what Luke is uh, telling us that Jesus is saying. Um, There's probably nothing that was more defiling as far as the Hebrew was concerned than a dead human body, a dead corpse or bones uh, of a human. And and so uh, all you had to do was just get in the proximity of, uh, of, of a tomb and you would be defiled. And to touch or to walk across a grave was total defilement. Now, where this really ran into trouble was that there are a lot of people buried out of the fields over the centuries. There are a lot of graves out there that people don't know where they are except the person who actually lives there. So when there was a feast day, like, like Passover or Pentecost, when pilgrims would be coming by the tens of thousands to Jerusalem for that particular festival, then they would actually whitewash the tombs. They would whitewash them so that everyone could see, whoa, there's, there's a tomb. I'm going to avoid it. I'm not going to touch it because guess what would happen? First of all, if that person was a Levite or a priest on the way to the temple, remember they served in sort of a revolving schedule. If they're walking to their one time in their life that they're going to actually serve and do something like take the incense in, like Zechariah did, okay, then, then, and they walked across a grave, all of a sudden they're, they're defiled. And, and they can't walk in and, and, and they can't do their service because you have to go through a seven-day ceremonial cleansing. Or, or if the person just going to the Passover feast and the whole family is going to be there and you walk across the grave, you can't eat the Passover. Do you remember in John when the Sanhedrin is in the street and they won't go in Pilate's house? They make him come out because if they did, they would defile themselves and not be able to eat their Passover supper, Right? So that's exactly what would happen if you walked over an unmarked grave. Now, in Matthew, the way that Jesus uses that is in a way very similar to the plates and dishes. He says, you, you whitewash your tombs so they look mighty nice from the outside, but on the inside, they're filled with dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying here is, you're not whitewashed graves; you're unmarked graves, you're unwhitewashed graves. You see, because you don't broadcast on the outside the wickedness and the and the unregenerate souls that you have on the inside, and so therefore the unsuspecting will right, walk right over you, not knowing what you are on the inside. In the inside, you're filled with defilement. Two things that he's pointing out here. One, going right back to that lamp. As far as that person is concerned, there is a lamp that shines to the inner being. And in the unregenerate, that represents the soul. And when the Holy Spirit comes and he fills that soul and regenerates it, he fills that lamp with his light. And that light shines on the whole being and begins the process of sanctification. But if the lamp is bad... It's not just passive. If the lamp is bad, it actually shines darkness and defilement and profaneness into the inner being. That's why Jesus says, be careful, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. And That's the situation that he's unmasking as far as these religious hypocrites are concerned, but that's just where it begins. See, the real problem is that they export that darkness. They're not just in the business of, of of filling themselves with darkness. They want other people to be filled with darkness. Jesus calls them blind guides. And he says that these are blind guides of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But the real problem is that they're looking to destroy two Greedily, remember that word greed means to strip, to take, to rob, to, to, to rapaciously take that which is not yours, to go and find people and turn them into unmarked graves just like themselves. That's what Jesus says in the 23rd verse once again. You travel across, I'm sorry, 23rd chapter of Matthew once again. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you turn him into twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Those are harsh words, brothers and sisters. Those are very hard, straightforward words. And Jesus also had very harsh words to say about the judgment for such actions. He said, on one occasion, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, and he's not talking about just children. He's talking especially about the young in him. He says, whoever calls one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Elsewhere, he says, it would be better if they had never been born. So Jesus wants us to know something here, brothers and sisters, I am convinced. He's not just telling us that the Pharisees are bad people, so he, he can talk about how bad they are. He, he's not just saying that th- th- these are my enemies, that, uh, and I'm angry because they were so apostate. And he's not just saying that th- this is the reason I got driven to the cross, and you need to know that I made these enemies of these hypocrites. I think this is an unmasking for our benefit as well. I think that what Jesus is saying is is I want you to know what's on the inside of these people so that you can look for them because you're surrounded by them. Hypocrites are everywhere. Hypocrites fill the church. Hypocrites are on the airwaves and they're writing books and they're every place you're going to turn. How are you going to know the difference between the real and the false? Especially if you're a Baby Christian. So he gives us these pointers. And, 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 and they're designed, I believe, to unmask them. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into any depth. I just want to repeat them because I know this has been a very full morning. But brothers and sisters, this is hugely significant for the church to know. It all starts with God, folks. Everything starts with God. All religions start with God. All heresies and all apostasies and all hypocrites start with God. If anyone teaches you that God is not absolutely sovereign, that he is not omnipotent, all-powerful, if he is not omniscient, all-knowing, if he is not eternal, and infinite. If He is not holy and just and wrathful at our sins, if anyone teaches you that God is not those things, then they are teaching you about a false God, not the real God, not the God that exists in Scripture. If they teach you that God is all love with no no anger at all, no righteous anger, now that's where it really gets confusing because yes, God is love; He's completely compassionate. And those who tell you that God is also angry and wrathful at sin, I mean, we've gotten such a bad name with the hellfire and brimstone preachers using it for their own purposes over the years. But that is right out of scripture. God is wrathful at your sinfulness. And if anyone teaches you otherwise, Paul says, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. But Jesus says they are unmarked graves have Nothing to do with them. Because if you walk over them, you will be filled with their unrighteousness, their defilement. And that's what they want to do, is to fill you with their own defilement. Have nothing to do with them. They're unmarked graves. And you will be defiled by them. Second thing that we need to emphasize is that you must be born again. <laughs> You're not spiritually sick. You're spiritually dead. In your natural state. And a dead person cannot save himself. Or herself. You need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You need to be born again. And, 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 and if anyone teaches you. That it's partially your job, partially what you do. It's your good works plus his salvation or it's your good works altogether That Jesus is just here to point us in the right direction. If anyone teaches you anything like that have nothing to do with them, they are unmarked graves and if you walk across them, you will be defiled. Thirdly, Jesus is the divine incarnate. Son of the living God. Jesus is God incarnate in in the flesh. He was all human. He was all God. He was the infinite God-man who came to this world with a threefold agenda to destroy evil, to seek out His people, His elect, and to save them and set them free, and then to introduce us to the love of the Father. Jesus came with a purpose. It was to go to a cross to be hung on that cross, to have the sins of those he came to save poured upon him, to have God the Father pour his wrath out upon those sins. And Jesus will be a substitutional, substitutionary sacrificial atonement, paying and redeeming you from sins that you can never redeem yourself from. He came to live a perfect life. So that you could stand before a holy God in his righteousness and not your own. He died on that cross. He humanly died. They took his dead body down from that cross and put it in a tomb. He saw no corruption. He rose on the third day. He was resurrected by the power of God. He revealed himself to hundreds of people. He ascended to heaven. He was coronated King of kings and Lord of lords. He stands even now ruling his kingdom at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again. power and glory. If anyone teaches you another Jesus, they are unmarked graves, have nothing to do with them. Don't read their books. Don't listen to their blogs. Don't pay attention to them, because if you walk over them, you will be defiled. Almost all false teachers want you to focus on the minors rather than the majors. They all want you to get off on little minutiae of Christianity and not pay attention to the big things. Or they may talk the gospel. They may use that word a lot. They, they may talk evangelism, but they have a different idea of what evangelism is. They want you to nitpick about things like what kind of music do we sing or what kind of instruments are on the uh, on the stage or what the color of the carpeting should be or how we're going to tile the bathroom. And we fight about those things like the Pharisees fought over how to wash your hands. And if they can get you to do that and ignore the more important things, do you love God? Do you have a a deep and abiding love for God? Is it something that is real within you? Do you hunger after His Word? Do you want to please Him? Do you love Him? Do you love His Son? Do you believe that His Spirit lives in you? They don't want you to think about those things. Think about the the minutiae. And if they do that to you, my dear brothers and sisters, they are unmarked graves, have nothing to do with them, because if you walk over them, you'll be defiled. False teachers quite often have a different presentation, and I'll end with this. They have a a different look, a different feel. From one end of the scriptures to the other, God teaches us how much he adores Humility, contriteness of heart, a lack of arrogance to stand before him, but not even to stand, stand in his righteousness, but fall on your face otherwise. Because he is sovereign and you are not, because he is Lord and you are not. To have a humility, but if you stand before him in arrogance and pride, that's the world's way. And all these people that are so popular... All the, the music that is so popular. Take a look at them. Are they arrogant or are they humble? Are, are they they're, they're putting themselves forward? Are, are they building a, a ministry around their own charisma? Or are they building it around the word of God? Are they transparent to where you don't even know they're there? They come to tell you about Jesus and about no one else. If they're not doing that... Brothers and sisters, they're unmarked graves. And if you walk across them, if you read their books, if you go to their churches, if you listen to their blogs, if you see their videos, you'll be defiled. Brothers and sisters, it breaks my heart when I hear, and I hear it here as well as other places, not so much here, but especially other places when I see some of these prancing, arrogant, self-centered, unregenerate, heretical, hypocritical, outward religious people that I know that what they teach is wrong and I hear people quote them and I hear people say, oh, they were so meaningful in my life. They, You know, I listen to them and, I, and yeah, I, I, I like you to, to, to hear the word the way you teach it, but I also love them because they teach it kind of in a different way. No, it's very different because it's not the truth. And, 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 and if you, if what they want from you, they're not going to be satisfied with your soul being in the, in the hands of Jesus and, and, and not in the hands of Satan. So what they actually want you to be is an unmarked grave in and of yourself. And they will never stop if you give them a toehold. So I leave you with this, brothers and sisters, be careful. Beware. Watch out, lest the light in you become darkness. Lest you walk too closely to an unmarked grave and become one yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many dangers that wait for us, especially for young Christians. And for the most part, the church is silent about it. You know, we don't want to offend. We, we, we don't want to call names. And I didn't call any names today. You did. You, 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 you pulled out and you showed us, unmasked the Pharisees. Next week, you are going to unmask the lawyers. And so, Lord, I know that we need to speak out against the, the hypocrisy of, uh, of the religion that exists all around us. And I just pray, dear Lord, that you will give wisdom and discernment to this congregation, both those who are here and those that are listening. I pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment to be able to unmask, to expose these heretical, hypocritical, legalistic, moralistic, religiosity type of people who surround us in every corner. Keep us close to your truth, Lord. We don't want to be unmarked graves. We don't even want to be whitewashed graves. We would rather be the light of truth shining in the darkness, giving you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.